Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young's Inviting the Muses. Let's see. Ah, oh, one. Let's see, Wednesday, Thursday. Well, maybe do both those Thursdays. I'm really going to try and finish this up by the end of this week, but it may. I may go into next week, but I am going to try and finish it up this week. And then probably give myself a little bit of a break and head into the other, the other book, uh, Angels in the Forest, which I've already read once, but um, it'll be good to read it again. It was very good. It was really good. Um, this one is called Tiger Lilies, uh, Truman Capote, Other Voices, Other Rooms. The large num number of novels, even when well-written, bear no qualifications of individuality, except as, except as to subject matter, one can scarcely be singled out from another. Other Voices, Other Rooms, the first novel by the young Southerner Truman Capote, does bear, in the writing itself, the aura of individuality, of personality, a special atmosphere of thought and style, an attitude toward reality apart from any merely practical problem, character, or situation. This work, like the short stories, is concerned with the extra marginal, the symbols interloping among otherwise unintelligible experiences, the dreams, memories, perceptions, the fleeting peculiarities of human nature as revelatory of the psychic underworld which all persons inhabit in daylight. Character, problem, situation are secondary to these. As in his short stories, the author veers away from the common-sense world of familiar, tried orientations, utilizing instead data of the psychic underworld, signs, symbols, derangements, which you could have just walked up the stairs. Come here, little boy. Wit, yes. What? What scared you, huh? Which, through extension, seem metaphysical, a commentary upon man in space. There is nothing literal. Though there is accuracy of observation, is deceptive accuracy. The individual is never the supposed normal, but is a confluence of signs. The individual is cloaked in an arabesque of disguises, psychologically motivated, but not always stated, moving in a world of curved mirrors and distortions from which he cannot be distinguished, as the image reflected or the image of exaggerated deceit may be the only character. The text of moral analysis is thus absent from this amoral work of strange reversals and strange proportions, where the figure of a butterfly may well blot out a man or seem equated with him. But the very absence of such analysis may have its meaning in a mosaic of revelations, contributing, for example, to the hidden thesis that the abnormal does exist and is therefore valid. Who is the individual person of whom Capote writes methodically yet adventuresomely? It would be only the naive, most often often the purposefully naive, who could dismiss this individual as altogether alien and strange. The individual, according to Capote's view, is not an organized whole so much as he is the aberrant fragment of self, something struck off from the whole, a piece of the unconscious, a single fleeting image in a disturbing mirror and representative of the repressed forces within the human mind which do put on their masquerades in order to mingle with and be distinct from the legitimate actors on the shadowy stage of life. Bodies are not bodies here so much as they are revelations of some sectors of the mind, as if people suddenly betraying impotency, living death, memory, and implausible but actual world hinging on to this, other voices, other rooms. In much writing, we see the legitimate actors and deduce the illegitimate, whereas here, without confusion, the reverse process is taking place. Exotic creatures or creations, they could be winged, but they are not. They are neither cherubim nor birds, step out of the void, are glimpsed, are gone, are melted into the ether which gave them birth. 
People already dead, some who are heard but not seen, others others who are seen but not heard, the young who are old, the old who are young, all seem equated with the spider's tracery in the wind. Some are flesh and blood, but still are snow and shadow. Some are personifications of a child's intuitions, forebodings, dreams. Some pertain more to a haunted place than to any one person. Weight is thrown upon the side of the illusory being, perhaps to suggest that there is no other. When cognizance of the real flesh is taken, it is a bitter acknowledgment. Capote's world is a miniature world, but gothic and spacious in the futurity of its design. It can grow. It is occupied, for the most part, by little people of a delicacy which is monstrous, by children, dream children, midget fading into starlight, doll-like witch jerking as if on strings, old people who are children. Monstrous sensitivity triumphs over monstrous strength to the extent that the small are strong and that the invisible are sometimes visible. In this romantic landscape of the South... Sorry, I have to check and see where... What he's doing now? Okay. In this romantic landscape of the South, the combination of intensely regional and sur-regional occurs as a matter of course, for nature cannot help exceeding itself if closely examined. The ruby-fingered hand of a drowned gambler rising from a still pond proclaims a land of high subjectivity, no boundary between past and present, between possible and impossible, between material and immaterial between flesh and light. All that goes on is a project of the mental. The most brutal act, rape, is dictated by weakness. Characters continually divide into two parts, either in dream or in reality. The man who is believed to be a man is an ancient bell appearing for a moment in a reality which suddenly takes on the character of a dream. Actually, the situation of Randolph, disguised in a woman's clothing, because it was thus that he wooed his first love, is not far different from that of Mrs. Miller in the short story Miriam, both as schizophrenic... Hey, hey, hey! No. No. <sighs> oh, see? She's a good kitty. Though both are oh, see, both, both are symbolic in their texts and compel sympathy not related to clinical cases. In Miriam, a middle-aged woman has become both herself and a senile white-haired child. In other voices, other rooms, a similar demon harasses another by embodying his own consciousness in space. Both emerge from the hidden psychological life as visual objects, real or imaginary. Other voices, other rooms, is thus a continuation of the stories and their concerns. As in the tree of night, the accumulated superstitions of childhood are brought into focus and illuminated. Everywhere is a feeling of the idiocy of experience apart from the inner life. Actuality fades as the dream construct grows. Love is equated with death. There are wind movements, ballets and clouds, eyes at every keyhole, voices in empty rooms, little people who are too old, old people who are too young, and the, whose innocence is evil. Everyone is doing, too, a disappearing act. The atmosphere is subtly explosive. Everything takes place at the intersection between two traffic lines, the real and the and unreal, which then reverse positions as by magic or blend in one streaming track. At any moment, there comes a crucial eruption, incident, or image showing these lines conjoined, inseparable, ever apparent, and that a terrifying potency may inhabit impotent things, and that persons must be considered in terms of images and perceptions other than themselves. It is not accidental that we have come to lonesome country, and here in the swamp-like hollows, where tiger lilies bloom, the size of a man's head, there are luminous green logs that shine under the dark marsh water like drowned corpses, for this landscape is also psychic, a mystery. Truman Capote said, um, 
I believe, uh, oh, sorry, this was po posted in the, published in the Kenyan Review, 1948, and somewhere in one of her, um, in an interview or something, uh, uh, Truman Capote said that Margaret Young was the mother of us all. Um, so they had some kind of, uh, they had some knowledge of each other, and she reviewed his book, so that's pretty cool. So this, that is the last one for the 1940s. So while, and again, you could still, all through it, and those reviews, you can see the ideas that Margaret Young was um, mulling over and pu putting in her own work. Uh, Miss McIntosh, my darling. I did watch A Place in the Sun because I did not want to read Dreiser's uh, American Tragedy. So if there's ever a movie made of it, I, can, I just want to get the gist. Um, so it's really good. Um... Uh, Oh, Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor is in it. Um, um, it was done in, it was done in 1950, 1951, something like that, 1950s. I thought it was really, um, I guess for the book, I'm not sure when Dreiser wrote it, but for, I guess for the book and then also the movie based on it, it was really, um, how can I put this? I was like risque. It was really like, talking about um I'm gonna have to read I'm gonna have to do the other one because I don't remember there's another movie that she's in there's a couple of them that she's in with Tennessee Williams I know Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and then there's another one. Oh, I found it and I, I added it to a list for, for to watch um so at the time there were this really just dis not disturbing but um there's this thing with the pre-Hays Code movies, 1930s, where there was no regulatory system. So they covered, even for the time, I've watched a lot of those movies, and they're good. And they cover a lot of um, uh, facts about uh, life for men and women at that time. Either life for men and women uh, according to their social circumstances, or especially women for their place in society. And so the uh, Place in the Sun really kind of struck me because um, uh, it was also examining those um, issues. Uh, I don't want to give away the story. I, I if you haven't watched it, you know, watch it. If you have, you know, watch it again. Because uh, I know I've seen it once at least, but uh, but it was good. Uh, I watched it again. Um, and so it didn't dawn on me that they were covering these issues that for the 1950s would have been really... Um, I don't want to say taboo, I guess. Um, uh, and that you're, you know, um, uh, sex out of marriage, uh, outside of marriage and, you know, uh, having children and having to, or maybe it's just me. Maybe that was commonplace stuff. I don't know, but a commonplace for, no, no, but I've watched a lot of those movies and this was the first one that really kind of, uh, had that at the forefront, and of course, you know, she had to die. So, because he was in love with the the rich family member's daughter, some associate, and so he wanted to, to marry her instead. But, um, uh, yeah, it was really good. So I could see why uh, Young liked Dreiser. I'm not sure about the other two, the Titan and one other one, as part of his trilogy. Um, I don't know, I'll have to look into it and see if I really want to read those or not. Uh, actually, I'm going to go ahead and read one more. This one's very short. And so we can try and get, move ahead. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I can move ahead to make sure that we finish by, by this week. So the next one is Comedy in a Tragic Show by Marianne Hauser, The Choir Invisible. Sorry, I keep reading these wrong. Comedy in a Tragic Show is the title that Margaret Young gave. She's reviewing Marianne Hauser, The Choir Invisible. Marianne Hauser's The Choir Invisible is a novel of great literary and artistic merit, a novel with an exquisite prose style which, visionary and yet incisive, many-faceted, gives to the writing a kind of justification. There are doubtless few readers who can fail to agree that Miss Hauser, who has made a genuine spiritual investment here, bringing light to the mysteries of human nature, no readers who can deny the integrity of such writing with its arabesques of music and meaning. For this kind of writing, having involved the author, involves the reader, and thus succeeds in maintaining its mercurial magic, glitter, and excitement. The central problem proposed, upon which all other problems of the book turn, is this. What happens when an ordinary man receives the news that he is about to die? Then indeed his death is all but inevitable. Art. All of our deaths inevitable. Okay, uh, sorry. <laughs> Various as such answers could be, Miss Hauser pursues the interesting possibility that it is only when we are about to die that we begin to live. This is another huge theme that she wrestles with in Miss Macintosh, My Darling. Oh, and I've come to the conclusion after there's some other um, reviewers that I follow that, and obviously reviewers of big books. Like they really like the big books, and and uh, you could, uh, there's a whole bunch. Um, I've stuck with Miss Macintosh, My Darling, because there is the lore of the big books. I have read quite a few of them myself, but. There is that lore that, you know, oh, you need to read the next big book. So one of the reasons I've stuck with Ms. McIntosh, my darling, and even though I've read excerpts, I've read the reviews, I, I like him. I, I like learning about him and, and that kind of stuff. But I haven't gone on to them is because I believe all the big books are saying the same thing. Like whenever they give me quotes and stuff out of those books, I go, oh, yeah, oh, Ms. McIntosh, my darling. I was in Ms. McIntosh, my darling in some way. So, um... So I have come to my own conclusion that all the big books are saying the same thing. So there's no reason for me to go on. <laughs> so, sorry. <laughs> um, all right, sorry. Where was I? <sighs> this dying man reaches out into new dimensions of being, furiously insisting upon greater and greater projects, always here on this earth, always involving an entire community or at least certain pivotal figures in his design. A bank clerk suffering from cancer of the bloodstream, he is a choir director seeking to organize a choir, one which shall sing heavenly music on this earth, however not in distant clouds. He reaches not only into the future, but into the past, the past of his own life, resurrecting figures of duality and of illusion who have provided his childhood's unreal background and who have perhaps conditioned him for the acceptance of illusion. All emerge once more into the light of the perhaps deathless moment. This gay but suicidal father, a barber who successfully posed as a doctor, his neurotic mother, with her illusions of grandeur never quite destroyed. His fantastic aunt, who saw through every illusion but destroyed none. The community, fittingly enough, is a small Missouri town where the eccentric seems to flourish with a wilder abandon than the type, a fact long ago suggested by Mark Twain. The figures of the present include the spiritualist who, with her belief in immortality and many lives, she was once a Roman army officer, once a nun, is in deadly rivalry with the prosperous undertaker to whom mortality is, necess is a necessity. A highly comic book, though written in the shadow of great tragedy, a book not about death but about life, a book showing the miracle of life in an atmosphere where everything is heightened, magnified, understood through the approaching death of one man. And this was published in New York Herald Tribune Book Review in 1958. So we skip a good 10 years. 
And that I think that's probably because of the bulk of the writing she was doing with Miss Macintosh, my darling, before she does another review. But again, uh, it has to be that something in the book was uh, uh, that uh, the idea about uh, living is death. Um, uh, the interesting possibility that it is only when we are about to die that we begin to live, and that's a theme in Miss Macintosh, my darling. Um, so, oh, she, uh, so I can see where she, you know, read this book and was like, yeah, I'm, I'm doing, I'm working on that too. Um, and really liked it. There's some of these. Oh, Doris Lessing. There's some of these that, um, I have gone through and been able to find them like in the public library and stuff. And I might go through and see if I can find a couple of more. Um, But um, uh, this, I, I know her reviews give a good uh, idea of what she was reading. I, I'm picking the favorable ones, not the. Well, it's real, it's strange, but the unfavorable, the unfavorable. The, there's only a couple that she wrote like a kind of unfavorable. Yeah, no, they were unfavorable reviews. She wasn't impressed, and so there's only a couple of them that she did. She really stuck to the more positive ones, reviewing stuff that she really liked. Um, those. So when you go to look up their books, just on a whim, I was going looking up to see if any of these authors were still. Are, around that you could get their books and um no not really and then the other ones that are that are good that she really liked you can find those I, i'm just looking through the library so it's like if i can find it in the library and and you know put it on my to be read list which is enormous um then that's what i'm doing okay so we've got Okay, so I'm going to do two to, uh, tomorrow, and then I have a long one on Annie Snin, which they were good friends, and then the final one, or the final two, will be after that. All right. Oh, goodness. Okay. Thank you so much for listening. The the um, I piled up a couple of crates, so the uh, baby boy decided he liked sitting on top of there and not causing a fuss today. So that was pretty cool. All right, I'm about to have a coffee and fit. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.